The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. What the president ignored and when he ignored it. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, April 9th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. First, the good news, or as close as we can get to good news in a deadly worldwide pandemic. Even as the number of deaths continues to rise in the U.S., there appear to be glimmers of hope just when we need them most. In the viral hotspot of New York, the number of new patients being admitted to hospitals appears to be falling. The number of ICU admissions is way down. The number of intubations is down. And the number of people being discharged from hospitals is at least holding steady. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo thinks his state has reached a plateau, even after losing a record number of people yesterday. The curves seem to be leveling out in other parts of the country as well. At least that's the appearance. Out of an abundance of caution, we braced ourselves for an unfathomable death toll. And as bad as it is and will still be, it now appears the pandemic's toll in the U.S. might not quite be as bad as expected. Not as bad as the president expected when he spoke of 200,000 deaths just last week. The University of Washington is among the institutions publishing models of the pandemic based on existing numbers and other factors. On Tuesday, the University of Washington model revised downward the number of projected deaths from 94,000 to 82,000. Yesterday, it dropped its projection to fewer than 61,000. But that is the most optimistic of all the models, which is perhaps why that model is being used by the White House. Still, it's a glimmer of hope. We may never know the actual number of coronavirus deaths. Public health experts say the number's likely higher since no testing is done on those who die at home or in nursing homes. The testing itself isn't totally accurate, and there still aren't enough tests to go around. They're being used more for the living than for the dead. We can't even be certain of the death toll from previous pandemics, but the counts we have at least give us some idea. Still, the death toll, staggering as it is, might not be as massive as we had anticipated. More good news comes in the form of help. West Coast states offering much-needed support to hard-hit New York. California sending New York 500 ventilators. Washington state sending 400. Oregon sending 140 more. New York's Governor Cuomo has promised to return the favor once the worst of this pandemic has passed in his state. And we cannot ignore the help that people and businesses are giving each other in this health crisis. We cannot forget the sacrifices made by medical personnel and grocery store workers who've lost some of their own to serve the rest of us, many of them at shamefully low wages. We cannot forget the risks they are taking and the stress they are enduring for as long as they can hold up. But in exchange for these glimmers of good news, we must still face the current reality and how all of this would have been less severe with a fast and comprehensive response from the executive branch of our federal government. It is too soon to confirm the light at the end of the tunnel the president says he sees. Even with limited testing, the U.S. now has more confirmed coronavirus cases than Spain, Italy, and France combined. We now have three times as many cases as Spain, which has the second most cases. Over the past couple of days, one American, one member of a family, has died from COVID-19 every 45 seconds. The U.S. has the highest per capita rate of infection and the highest per capita rate of death. The U.S. has had the weakest response on the planet to this pandemic. The U.S. government has failed in its response at the expense of tens of thousands of lives. 
As the U.S. approaches a half million cases, about 15,000 people have died. We still appear to be facing the loss of more American lives from the new coronavirus than we lost in the wars in Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan combined. The U.S. is already losing more lives per capita than any other nation on Earth. By that metric, dozens of countries have done a better job of containing the virus. The Trump administration not only waited until the enemy had landed to defend this country, it eliminated the federal offices assigned to protect us against pandemics, and it did so after warnings that a pandemic would strike. If that sounds familiar, you need only page back to September 11, 2001, when the Bush administration missed or disregarded several indications of an imminent terror attack. The Trump administration first learned of the coronavirus outbreak on January 3rd of this year. In the two and a half months that followed, the president told the public the U.S. would be safe from this faraway disease and that it was just the flu and that his administration had everything under control. It took 10 weeks for the president to get to this is not the flu and that at least 100,000 of us will die, maybe a quarter million, maybe more. The president's made it very clear on his daily TV show that he does not like to be reminded that he told the American people the number of cases would soon be down to zero. The virus first appeared on White House radar more than three months ago, and now more than 15,000 Americans are dead when that number could have been so much smaller. The Washington Post reports that when the administration finally did begin to respond to this crisis, it fumbled, sending out thousands of useless test kits when testing was needed in the early hotspots where stay-at-home orders could have been issued to prevent the spread of this disease to the rest of the country. The number of lives that could have been saved may never be known. We do know the numbers we're following to track the virus's destruction are forever flawed because to this day, we still don't have the widespread testing that's available to people in other countries. And when it came time to begin to treat the hundreds of thousands of Americans who fell ill to the virus, we learned we don't have enough equipment or enough hospital beds or enough doctors and nurses to handle it. The National Security Council's pandemic team and other government tools had been disbanded by this administration. The budgets had been cut in our federal health programs. Scientists had been chased out of the government by the score. And the equipment in our national stockpile went without maintenance, leaving us with hundreds of broken ventilators. It was the middle of the Senate impeachment trial, half past January, when an Air Force doctor who works in preparedness at Health and Human Services wrote one word in his notebook on a page all by itself, followed by three exclamation points. The word was coronavirus. This military doctor told his people at HHS to look into ways to use the Defense Production Act to fight the pandemic. He told them to look for things the government might want to force private companies to make so the U.S. could protect its national security. That was mid-January. It wasn't until the last week of March that the president began using the Defense Production Act, slowly and gingerly. Part of Trump's legacy is stripping the government of regulations on private industry. Now he was being pressured to tell private industry what to do, and he was in no hurry to do that, even with so, so many lives at stake. The Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, tried to take the warnings he'd heard from that Air Force doctor and the CDC directly to the president. But Trump, who doesn't care much for Azar, was initially focused on the regulations being placed on vaping companies and the effect it might have on his re-election and didn't respond to Azar's warning. The president went on to appear at eight more public rallies and to hang out at his golf clubs a half dozen times. 
It was at one of those rallies 10 days into February when Trump told his crowd by April, when it gets warmer, it miraculously goes away. But Azar, who had read the playbook for crisis management, put his people to work tracking the virus using a system similar to the one the government uses to track influenza, but a system that was useless for this crisis without any coronavirus test. Azar ultimately made a transatlantic call to one of Trump's national security advisors and told him it was mayhem at the White House, according to reports by both the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. Involving the National Security Council was a crucial step in order to execute the various possible responses that had been drawn up by the Health and Human Services Preparedness Team. And although Azar tried to get his hands on a sample of the virus for testing and study, China was still dragging its feet. Azar even tapped into a guy who knows a guy there, but China refused to let go of a sample. Because he was at the time more interested in trade, there was no telling this to Trump, especially since the president at the time was heaping praise on Chinese President Xi Jinping. Almost simultaneously in late January, a Seattle man who'd been to China tested positive for the coronavirus, and a couple days later, the city of Wuhan, China was locked down. A senior federal official who was in the White House meetings about the virus then tells the Washington Post it was, quote, like, whoa. That, says the official, was in the Richter scale hit eight. So now we know what the administration knew and when it knew it. It was around January 22nd of this year that the first American contracted the 2019 coronavirus disease and that Wuhan, China had to be shut down because its cases were spreading so rapidly. And that's the same day the President of the United States proudly announced, we have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. It's going to be just fine. Hundreds of thousands of U.S. cases later, we are not just fine. It was on January 29th that Trump's economic advisor, Peter Navarro, wrote an email memo to the National Security Council warning that the coronavirus could take more than a half million American lives and that it could cost taxpayers nearly $6 trillion to deal with it. January 29th. He also recommended that travel from China be shut down, which Trump did do partially the very next day. We just learned about Navarro's memo on Tuesday of this week when the news site Axios got its hands on multiple White House memos documenting this. Despite the warnings from Navarro, Trump said on January 30th, it's going to have a very good ending for us. By late February, Navarro learned that as many as 100 million Americans could be infected and that 2 million Americans could die from COVID-19. And on February 23rd, he wrote a second memo, this one directly to the president, that included the sentence, this is not a time for penny-pinching or horse-trading on the Hill. In a tweet the day after he got Navarro's second memo, Trump tweeted the outbreak was, quote, very much under control. What could Trump have known? It was all in Navarro's memos, if only he'd read them, if only he'd been paying attention. When could Trump have known it? He would have known it in the last week of February, about a month before he'd publicly acknowledged the seriousness of this crisis. After another one-month delay in the U.S. response, because the president listened to the wrong people. Other Trump advisors had disagreed with Navarro's gloomy assessment, and the president sided with them instead. Following his late February memo, White House economic advisor Peter Navarro was removed from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Later, Trump would say, no one could have predicted such a devastating pandemic. On Tuesday of this week, he was asked about those memos from Peter Navarro. I didn't see him, said Trump. I didn't look for him either.
Trump, known for his refusal to read much of anything, hadn't read, he said, the memo that was sent directly to him, and no one in his administration bothered to make sure that he did. As January came to an end, China was locking down an entire province, and the White House began limiting travel from China to the U.S. Trump says, somewhat truthfully, that it was wise of him to approve those travel restrictions. But enforcement of the limitations was spotty, and 430,000 more people poured into the U.S. from China despite the administration's efforts, 300,000 of them before the White House took any action. The Post reports, that's when panic set in at the White House over an apparent shortage of protective masks for our doctors and nurses and a lack of available funds to buy more. The money, in fact, was running out. HHS Secretary Alex Azar and others sounded the alarm that the White House needed to ask Congress for billions of dollars to fight coronavirus disease. The supply of protective gear in our national stockpile was depleting, and the crisis in China had cut off our main source of replacements. The U.S., for the most part, has long since abandoned manufacturing protective gear, just as it's abandoned the manufacture of other goods, because we could buy China's more cheaply than we could make our own. By the time all of this became clear to the White House, transport between China and the U.S. had been almost entirely shut down. Chinese factories were closed, and China was holding tight to the resources it had as it juggled its own major public health crisis. But Trump's Treasury Secretary was resisting the travel restrictions on China and on Italy and other European hotspots, as well as resisting the notion of spending billions on this virus. Stephen Mnuchin and others were worried about the effects those moves would have on Trump's pride and joy a then-robust U.S. economy, which was to have been his best shot at re-election. There was also a reluctance to throw a lot of money at the hotspot in Seattle in case that money was needed elsewhere, which caused us to miss an opportunity to nip the U.S. pandemic in the bud. The Post reports that a shouting match broke out in the White House Situation Room after Secretary Azar argued the need for $4 billion to combat the virus. And Azar was among those doing the shouting as he argued with one of Mnuchin's guys about spending that kind of money. Azar was already on shaky ground with the White House, so he spoke up at his own peril. The bickering forces inside the White House ultimately settled on a compromise number of $2.5 billion. Congress refused to pass a proposal so paltry and passed a battle budget that was more than four times more money than what the White House had reluctantly and sheepishly requested. When governors and hospitals warned they'd need hundreds of thousands of ventilators for this respiratory virus, the Trump administration responded with 10,000. Oh, oh, and the, the ventilators that the Trump administration has promised, they should arrive late this summer or early this fall. These much-needed machines will arrive in time for the election, but far too late for the expected peak of the U.S. pandemic. If they had started in February building ventilators, getting ready for this pandemic, we would not have the problems we're having today, says Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, who adds, and frankly, very many fewer people would die. With the U.S. taking no significant action on its own to curb the spread or to even get data on the spread, the virus did in fact spread to kill more than three times as many Americans as those who died here on September 11, 2001. Shifting the blame, Trump says the governor's problems are of their own making. Of Illinois' J.B. Pritzker, he said, there's a governor I hear complaining all the time, adding, he has not performed well. 
The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention first learned of this new respiratory virus on New Year's Eve. Barely a week later, the CDC issued a public alert about the virus, and less than 10 days later, it started checking people at the big airports. The CDC reached out to China, offering help and asking for information. China rejected that overture. The CDC stood alone in what was the government's only response at the time, and it stood on shaky ground and was too small to handle a crisis this big on its own. But the CDC has let itself go in recent years, and it too bears some responsibility here, even if the buck should stop with a president. For all his efforts, Health Secretary Azar was still telling Congress at the end of February that, quote, the risk to the American public remains low, despite what he had learned in the two months prior to that claim. The CDC, partly thanks to Trump administration budget cuts, had allowed the masks and the equipment and the national stockpile to deteriorate on the shelves without refreshing the stock. The CDC had already punted, the year before, on a machine that could crank out millions of face masks very quickly. The machine was commissioned by the Obama administration, but fell through the cracks in the second year of the Trump administration when the company that was to make the high-speed machine changed hands. The federal government spent millions of dollars on the development of this machine, and the CDC could sure use it now. The company says its contract ran out on September 2018, nearly two years into the Trump administration. Hospitals around the country are now scrounging for face masks in nail salons and auto body shops. One hospital is using a mixture of ultrasound gel and alcohol from a local distillery to make hand sanitizer. These are among the findings in an inspector general's report after a survey of hospitals across the country. Trump was displeased at that report and lashed out at the reporters who asked about it. He doesn't like most reporters. He doesn't like most inspectors general. More about them later in this report. Last night, the National Strategic Stockpile advised states that it was in the process of distributing the last of its medical-grade face masks just before the disease begins to peak in parts of the country. Also, the CDC on Alex Azar's watch had sent out thousands of faulty test kits. A simultaneous review found that the CDC was failing to meet quality control standards and failing to keep its labs and lab work sterile. The FDA Director of Medical Services told the CDC that if it were a privately run lab, quote, I would shut you down. It was that FDA administrator who tried in early February to fix things. Days later, the first American died of this new viral infection. That's when the CDC finally threw the development of coronavirus test kits open to private enterprise. A week later, Trump toured the CDC, wearing his 2020 campaign cap, bragging that the CDC tests were nearly perfect and that, quote, anyone who wants a test will get a test. More than a month later, that promise remains unfulfilled. When Dr. Fauci met with some of our governors in early February, they were shocked to hear the virtual opposite of what Trump had been saying publicly. Some of them immediately began implementing stay-at-home orders. In the third month of the outbreak, Trump continued to downplay the seriousness of the epidemic and spread false information while proclaiming himself a natural at understanding viruses and pandemics. In March, he was still more concerned about the toll the virus was taking on Wall Street than the toll it was taking on American lives. With two months' time already lost, Trump was tweeting that the virus would go away. Just stay calm, he tweeted in early March, reminding us that the flu kills tens of thousands of people a year. Quote, nothing is shut down. Life will go on, he said. But this was not the flu. 
self-imposed shutdowns began to crop up in hot spots in some careful states and counties. And life would not go on, at least as it had been. And although this, like all pandemics, will pass, life may never be quite the same. It was mid-March when he finally declared a national emergency. Even though he had publicly put Vice President Pence in charge of the coronavirus task force, Trump turned to his 39-year-old son-in-law, Jared Kushner, for help as the news coverage of his failures began to get to him. We now know it was Kushner who persuaded Trump early on that this new virus was not all that contagious, a position Trump clung to for weeks. Coming out of the White House shadows, with no experience in crisis management, medicine, or mobilizing the government, Jared Kushner put together his own alternate team to manage the crisis and took over part of the seventh floor of the Health and Human Services building. Nicknamed the Thin Suit Crowd, Kushner's team dreamt of a Google coronavirus screening website where people could be directed to testing centers that would appear in Walmart parking lots across the country. When the Oval Office address that Kushner had written for Trump was delivered, it not only failed to inspire confidence, it got vicious reviews. Trump, desperate to bring good news to his people, rushed to the Rose Garden the next day to promise the cameras that Jared's plan would all happen very quickly. It never materialized. To this day, nothing remotely like what was described in that news conference has come to pass. In fact, the thin suit crowd began to get in the way of public health officials, interrupting their work with pitches on how they could partner with Silicon Valley company Oracle. It was Kushner who persuaded the president to listen to financial experts instead of medical experts, leading Trump to say that the U.S. would be raring to go and open for business on Easter Sunday. This past week, Kushner joined his father-in-law condemning governors who, quote, ask for things just because you are scared. That's when Jared explained that the stockpile was our stockpile, whatever that means, and not a stockpile for desperate states like New York or Louisiana and soon others. We learned this week from the Washington Post's Robert Costa that Kushner and Peter Navarro, who are doling out the medical supplies from the National Strategic Reserve, are coordinating that distribution with the help of Republican campaign donors and contradicting the advice of Dr. Anthony Fauci. Both Kushner and Navarro, along with Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, are overriding the medical experts in pushing hydroxychloroquine, an unproven and potentially dangerous drug for treating COVID-19. More about that still ahead. Jared Kushner, who took over his family's real estate business when his dad went to prison for tax evasion and witness tampering, and then married Donald Trump's daughter, has been described as a bad decision maker. To this day, Trump listens to Kushner over the country's top immunologist, Dr. Anthony Fauci. An Associated Press investigation found that the Trump administration placed no orders to restock that depleted federal stockpile until about three weeks ago when hospitals reported they didn't have enough protective gear to treat the incoming tsunami of coronavirus patients. In the weeks that followed, hospitals would find that the stockpiled equipment included ventilators that didn't work and that the 10-year-old masks in that reserve had dry-rotted. It was the last week of March when Trump realized that his re-election chances no longer hinged on the economy, but on how many Americans would die. And by then, at least two months' crucial time had been lost, and so would be the lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans in spite of what he knew and when he knew it. Trump tried to blame the Obama administration, claiming he'd inherited an empty shelf. 
even though the Trump administration had by then three and a half years to refill that shelf if the claim were true, which it wasn't. And then Jared Kushner, who had worked in the shadows of the White House, was in front of the cameras telling the public the federal stockpile is, quote, supposed to be our stockpile. It's not, he insisted, supposed to be state stockpiles. He didn't explain who our might be, if not the states that make up the United States. The federal strategic national stockpile, he told reporters, is our stockpile and that states should not depend on it. Because his wife's dad had left it up to states and hospitals to fend for themselves and scrounging for equipment, they have all been competing to outbid each other. It's been described as anarchy. California Governor Gavin Newsom proposed a consortium of states, a more perfect union, if you will, to bid together instead of in competition. If only there were a United States that could do that. Trump has resisted actually using the Defense Production Act to take up the slack until he finally relented this week after it finally soaked in how damaging this could be to his re-election effort and how many people would actually die. In the meantime, doctors and nurses are MacGyvering their own protective wear out of cloth and rubber bands and plastic bags or, against standard protocol, wearing the same surgical mask for days while the president tells the public that a scarf might be much better for them than a surgical mask anyway. As for himself, he said he'd take his chances without a mask or a scarf, but he conceded that mere mortals probably should. His voter base eats that stuff up. Densely populated cities are where the virus has taken its early toll, but the pandemic is now spreading to rural America. Trump country, where governors and people have been and often still are skeptical of this crisis. Because they are even less prepared than the big cities, small towns and cities across the country will take the hardest hit from this pandemic. Half the counties in this country have no ICU beds, none, zero. Rural counties are often deprived of doctors and high-speed internet connections, and the Navy hospital ships cannot get to some county in the middle of Nebraska. And although it can hit hard individuals of any age, it particularly hits the elderly who also make up Trump's voter base. Rural counties have a disproportionate number of the elderly and their health is not as good as city-dwelling elders. The number of cases is blooming in our reluctant southern states. In places like Colorado, Idaho, and Utah, outbreaks are cropping up. For them, it was just a matter of time, and that time has come. Two-thirds of our rural counties now all have cases. The New York Times reports that two-thirds of our rural counties are reporting cases in Trump country, and it's home to the people who thought this disease would never make it to their town. By contradicting the scientists and the journalists from day one, Trump has put not just the country at risk, but most especially his own voter base. Trump's failure to issue a national stay-at-home order has, even as the bodies stack up, left the nation with a defense full of holes. The holes are the Republican states whose governors have dragged their feet at best and at worst brushed off this deadly pandemic as if it had nothing to do with them. Trump has enabled Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds to say, I can't lock everybody in their home. By not issuing that order, Trump has enabled Missouri's governor, Mike Parson, to call staying at home a matter of individual responsibility. Despite the stack of letters on the governor's desk from hospitals and nurses associations urging him to shut it down before they are overwhelmed. 
Missouri's caseload shot up by 600% in the last week of March. Trump enabled Arkansas Governor Ava Hutchinson to huff that there's nothing magical about a stay-at-home order. There's no such order in Mississippi, which has the second highest infection rate per capita against all the other states. Governor Tate Reed there declares Mississippi's never going to be North Korea. Trump's weakness on a national stay-at-home order has allowed Alabama Governor Kay Ivey to say this is, quote, not the time to order people to shelter in place. In Arkansas, the governor's just outlawed any city or county orders that people stay home. The governor of Alabama even made it a point to throw in a y'all when she declared that her state, we are not Louisiana and we are not New York State, we are not California. But in Alabama, new infections are up as sharply as they are in California. So Alabama is California when it comes to this. But California's leadership may have saved thousands of lives with its early and strict stay-at-home orders. California's curve appears to have already flattened, and now there's a $1,000 fine for not wearing a face mask in public in Los Angeles. Washington State, where it all began in the U.S., also gave stern and early warnings about staying home, and Washington has now flattened its curve. The curves are flattening in other countries that took swift and decisive action. Meanwhile, Republican leaders across the country have listened to their own conservative ideology and to business leaders while ignoring the health experts. Trump said he sees no need for a stay-at-home order for, say, Alaska. He said that after Alaska already had one in place. Trump's failure to lead on a national stay-at-home order is why Florida Governor Ron DeSantis revised his safer-at-home order to override the stronger controls that were already in place in some of the Sunshine State's biggest counties. DeSantis also amended his order to exclude churches, including the one in Tampa, at which a pastor was arrested for violating the county's more stringent, now overridden, stay-at-home order. DeSantis says he's thinking about letting all churches reopen for Easter. In Sacramento, California, a megachurch is considered the birthplace of some six dozen coronavirus cases. The Life Tabernacle in Louisiana didn't let a little pandemic get in the way of its Palm Sunday services. And although Texas has a stay-at-home order, under its Republican governor, churches are allowed to make their own decisions, governor calling houses of worship essential. In Kansas, where the governor has issued a stay-at-home order, the Republican legislature there yesterday overrode her order to exclude churches. We learned this week that the virus can spread by simply talking. After learning last week that singing can spread the virus throughout a church choir rehearsal. For the moment at least, whenever two or more of you are gathered in his name, there is contagion. Golf is considered essential in a number of states with stay-at-home orders. It certainly is in Florida where Trump's Mar-a-Lago Golf Resort is located. Liquor stores are essential in nearly every part of the country, with recreational marijuana stores open in some states and closed in others. In New Hampshire, florists for funerals, garden centers, and nurseries are considered essential. Not only are grocery stores essential, but so are the stores that sell pet food. Laundromats are necessary. Hardware stores for emergencies that crop up while we're sheltered in place. In the big cities, bicycle repair shops are essential. In Arizona, nail and hair salons are considered essential despite the risky close contact that both require. The mayor of Phoenix questions whether manicures are really essential. As she told the local radio stations, there are so many holes in this you can drive a freight train through it. Now that she mentions it, freight trains are essential too. And guns. 
gun sales in the U.S. are off the charts in this pandemic, and states have either chosen or been forced by court decisions to keep them open. About 2 million guns were sold in this country as the public began to grow fearful of the virus. The FBI ran more than three and three-quarters million background checks in March, the highest number in 20 years of record-keeping. Nearly two and a half million of those background checks were for gun sales, up 80% over March of last year. Well over a million background checks were run in a single week, the week of March 16th when the shutdown orders came. Those record sales broke all records back to 1998. In California that week, photographers documented the dozens of folks lined up outside every gun store right after that state's stay-at-home order went into effect. We cannot know exactly how many people bought guns last month, partly because private citizens can sell to each other without background checks, so those sales are not included in those numbers. The number of guns sold in this country in March, however, eclipsed the number sold after the massacre of young children at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Had it not been for the few state and city orders to close gun stores, the numbers likely would have been even higher. This appears to be the first time in recorded history that gun sales have spiked not from a fear of restricted laws, but because of our fear of each other in the face of a deadly pandemic. Thanks to Dr. Fauci, the rest of us have known for more than two months that the coronavirus was being spread by people who didn't yet know they were infected. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says he just heard about that this week. A game changer, he says that revelation was. The Centers for Disease Control is headquartered in his state's biggest city, Atlanta. In Albany, Georgia, the death rate is nearly double that of New York City. But with this amazing new knowledge, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp finally issued a stay-at-home order for his state, and then he reopened the beaches over the objections of beach towns that had firmly decided to sacrifice their livelihoods in the name of saving lives. The mayor of a beach town called Tybee Island reacted, saying, as the Pentagon ordered 100,000 body bags to store the corpses of Americans killed by the coronavirus, Kemp dictated that Georgia beaches must reopen. And then Governor Kemp issued a list of other exemptions to his stay-home order that included going to church, going to work, outdoor sports, and shopping. In other words, Georgia's stay-at-home order applies to almost no one. But he had issued an order, so maybe it would appear he'd taken some kind of important action. And nothing but crickets from Oklahoma and the Dakotas. Even though most of the country's locked down, huge swaths of it in the Midwest and South are not. And those nine states are about to be hit with a crisis for which they are not prepared, both in terms of resources and in terms of accepting reality. California Governor Gavin Newsom posed blunt questions for the governors of those nine holdout states. What are you waiting for, he asked. What more evidence do you need? As long as these nine states refuse to lock down, the U.S. will continue to have big holes in its best defense. Dr. Fauci certainly thinks we need a national shutdown. Quoting him this week, I just don't understand why we're not doing that. We really should be. The New York Times caught up with LaVonda Mayfield while she was waiting on takeout customers at the Iron Skillet Truck Stop restaurant just off I-40 in West Memphis. She said, I feel like if you would have just went ahead and put the whole nation at the time on a lockdown, we could have got some control over it. But now, added LaVonda, it's just out of control. Not all Republican governors have resisted the necessary moves to stem this pandemic, most notably Ohio's Mike DeWine and Maryland's Larry Hogan. 
Hogan, a GOP governor in a deep blue state who's loved by voters in both parties, has become sort of a national spokesman for the nation's governors, not counting the ones in the nine holdout states. Larry Hogan's generally shied away from the cameras until now, but he is, after all, the chair of the National Governors Association. Hogan has been honest about the severity of this pandemic. He's been clear about how a shutdown, painful as it is economically, is absolutely worth the sacrifice to save lives. And he's one of the few Republicans to question the stuff that Trump says and to say with clarity the federal government was caught in his words flat-footed. He defers to what he calls the smarter people around him. Hogan's described as both a fighter, ideally suited for this crisis, and a calm leader when that's exactly what's needed. And although states were left to fend for themselves in the absence of federal leadership, even our most admired state leaders dropped the ball. In late February, New York's Andrew Cuomo said, we can really keep this thing contained. Even after the first coronavirus death there on March 2nd, Cuomo said, excuse our arrogance as New Yorkers, we have the best health care system on the planet. We don't think it's going to be as bad here as it was in other countries. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio said, we have been ahead of this from day one. He was wrong, and that miscalculation led to delays. On March 5th, Mayor de Blasio was saying, we'll tell you the second we think you should change your behavior. While Wuhan, China added 9,000 disease experts at the start of this pandemic, New York held at 50 experts until the numbers got scary. New York didn't implement a stay-at-home order until March 22nd when the state had more than 7,000 cases. That was 10 days after the San Francisco shutdown where there were only 18 confirmed cases. By acting early, San Francisco has kept its numbers vastly lower than the numbers in New York. Even today, Governor Cuomo's asking for more ventilators as loved ones in that state prepare to bury more than 6,000 bodies, some of them in New York City parks which will now serve as temporary cemeteries. But as Cuomo correctly points out, every action I took was criticized at the time as premature. The facts have proven my decisions correct, he says, adding, we've been playing catch-up. You don't win playing catch-up. What we have learned from city to city, state to state, nation to nation, is that social distancing works, and the sooner it's implemented, the better it works. For proof, we can look at New Zealand, where they didn't just flatten the curve, they crushed it. New Zealand's lockdown is so strict, hunters are barred from the bushland, and not even one person could go for a swim at the beach. New Zealanders stayed six feet apart from one another, as they were told, and nobody entered a store until someone else came out. New Zealand set its goal much higher than any other country, its goal being elimination, not just confinement. In New Zealand, the number of new cases continues to fall. The number of people who've recovered there now exceeds the number of new infections. The government there sent out texts with a siren alert that read, Act as if you have COVID-19. This will save lives. New Zealand has endured exactly one death from COVID-19. That is how government can take a leadership role, by speaking with one clear voice, the kind of thing you might have expected the U.S. government to do. And this is why we cannot and must not let up on the stay-at-home orders until national testing is available to see who's safe to send back into the workforce and back to school and who isn't. Quoting Cuomo, this is an enemy we have underestimated from day one, and we have paid the price dearly. Hydroxychloroquine, 
Perhaps you've heard the president mention it. He's mentioned it multiple times over the past two weeks and quite dramatically, sometimes in a dramatic whisper. On Saturday, he said he might take the drug himself to prevent getting the new coronavirus disease. He's called it a game changer. He's falsely claimed that it's been approved by the FDA. He has seized on anecdotal evidence that the drug could help the sick recover. What do you have to lose, he asked. He has failed to emphasize the lack of testing for the drug or mention the risk to a patient's vision or the risk in denying that drug to the many Americans with lupus who truly need it. He had the government buy what he calls a tremendous amount of the drug, even though one drug maker had offered it at no charge. Trump's been pushing this drug for at least two weeks now and continues to do so with the help of his son-in-law, his personal lawyer, and other supporters, despite warnings from health professionals that he stop. Why is the president of the United States pushing a drug that's not been proven to be either effective or safe at treating COVID-19? On Tuesday, Trump admitted he has a, quote, small personal financial interest in Sanofi, a French company that makes Plaquenil, a brand name version of hydroxychloroquine. Sanofi is, in fact, the biggest investment of Trump's three family trusts. A major Trump donor, billionaire Ken Fisher, is one of Sanofi's biggest shareholders. Trump Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross once ran an investment fund that put money into Sanofi. And although it never got access to Trump, Novartis, which makes a generic version of the drug, gave Trump's lawyer Michael Cohen $1.2 million to get that access. Novartis executives had to answer questions about that from special counsel Robert Mueller. Though unconfirmed, Rudy Giuliani reportedly bought 2 million shares of Novartis stock in February. Giuliani, Jared Kushner, Peter Navarro, and Fox News host John Hannity and Laura Ingram have all been backing Trump's advice to, quote, take it. Trump has said that in this crisis, there's not enough time to test the drug, quoting him, we don't have time to say, gee, let's take a couple of years and test it out. The American Medical Association, two pharmacist groups, and others have warned against the use of hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. And one doctor's group has warned that if the drug were to be used worldwide as a treatment, there wouldn't even be enough to go around. American jobs began to disappear around the middle of March as stay-at-home orders spread across the states. Again, African Americans were the hardest hit, their jobless rate tripling from just under 6% to 19%. Today, new numbers showed another 6.6 million people filing for unemployment benefits, bringing the official total during this crisis to at least 17 million people. The new official unemployment rate is 10%, but the actual percentage is much higher. A new CNN poll shows that about half of Americans say they are now facing financial hardships because of the pandemic. About half of us. The government's coronavirus relief checks are supposed to start going out today, but we've learned that millions of people who need the checks most will see theirs delayed and millions won't get them at all. The paper checks for people who don't file their tax returns electronically go out a little over two weeks from now. About 80% of Americans file electronically, so their checks will be the first to arrive. This likely excludes many people in lower-income groups who don't file electronically. And those who don't can get their checks faster if they log into an IRS portal. For those who use the portal, the IRS says people with incomes of $10,000 a year or less will get their checks by April 24th. 
two weeks from Friday. Non-electric filers making 20th hour or less will get their checks shortly after May 1st and so on, with the IRS sending out about 5 million checks each week. The rest go out for the highest incomes on September 11th. But the Brookings Institute reports that as many as 10 million low-income adults without children who are eligible for stimulus money may not get a penny. For millions of people, their incomes don't require them to file tax returns, so they don't. Which means they're not in the IRS database, which is being used to send out those payments. There may be a second check in the mail this summer, worried they haven't done enough, worried the economy is falling apart faster than they expected. Trump and Congress agree there needs to be a fourth stimulus bill. House Democrats would like at least another trillion dollars to extend unemployment benefits, food stamps, and small business loans, plus that second round of checks to taxpayers. Trump agrees with some of that, the new checks and the help for small businesses at least. Congressional Republicans, however, say they want more money for the health care system and, of course, corporations. In the meantime, the Trump administration's pressuring banks to start doling out the money they've been sent already by the federal government for the purpose of small business loans that are forgiven if the business keeps all its remaining employees on payroll or hires back the ones it's furloughed or laid off. The Washington Post got hold of a video that shows a small business administration official tearing into the big banks for just sitting on that money. Some 32 pages into this week's script, we find ourselves finally taking a look at the most outrageous things Trump did this week. Not the most outrageous things he said, it's the things he did. He fired Glenn Fine, the Pentagon Inspector General, who was to oversee the $2 trillion stimulus package already passed by Congress and signed into law by the President. The stimulus bill says there shall be an Inspector General to make sure that money goes where it's supposed to go, where by law it's required to go, and that there's no monkey business. That provision was put into the bill partly because Trump had said before it even passed, quote, I'll be the oversight. Glenn Fine is being replaced by Sean O'Donnell, who's been the Inspector General at the Environmental Protection Agency. Until his replacement is found at EPA, he'll do both jobs at once. Why focus on just that $2.2 trillion? He can keep his day job. Fine was the second Inspector General Trump had removed in four days, the other of his two most outrageous steps this week. And as you heard earlier, he's complaining about the inspector general whose survey found severe equipment shortages in hospitals. With Trump calling her report another fake dossier, Christy Grimm may be the next to go for bringing bad news that clashed with the president's good news messaging that day on his daily TV show. Her 20-year career of serving presidents of both parties may also now soon be over. Note his use of the phrase fake dossier because even in a pandemic, he's still focused on his own impeachment. But also this past week, on Friday night, at just before midnight on the East Coast, when most Americans weren't likely to see or hear it, Trump removed the inspector general who was key to his impeachment, once again making himself look guilty of something. Known for his independence, Michael Atkinson's the man who reviewed the whistleblower complaint, decided it was credible, and obeyed the law by turning that complaint over to Congress for oversight, calling it urgent. That launched the inquiry that led to Trump being impeached, which history will not forget, even if the current news cycle has.
Trump doesn't like inspector generals because he doesn't like oversight. We already know he doesn't like it from Congress. We know that's why he fired James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Jeff Sessions, Colonel Alexander Vindman, and so many others, including trying to fire Bob Mueller. During the impeachment inquiry, Trump ignored subpoenas and refused at every turn to allow transparency and to allow the oversight the Constitution says Congress shall provide. Nearly every word in the whistleblower complaint has been independently confirmed. As Chuck Schumer put it, Trump doesn't like people who tell the truth. Firing Atkinson is just his latest act of trademark revenge. In the meantime, this president is eroding our system of inspectors general that was put into place because of the lessons learned from Richard Nixon's Watergate scandal. Like Nixon, only more so, Trump prefers no accountability. Trump also doesn't like whistleblowers on land or at sea. The coronavirus was spreading throughout the tight quarters of the USS Roosevelt off the coast of Guam. The commander of that ship, Navy Captain Brett Crozier, wrote a letter to more than two dozen people about how days earlier he'd asked his superior officers for help and advice as the virus spread through 114 of his nearly 5,000 crew members. In his letter, Crozier also said the Navy had failed to provide the resources he needed to fight the virus, namely moving most of his crew off the ship and beginning to disinfect the unoccupied quarters. One of the people receiving that email gave a copy to the San Francisco Chronicle and the national media picked it up. The top brass at the Pentagon was angry about the letter and angry about it being released to the press. And that is when Trump's acting Navy secretary stepped in to fire Crozier, saying the captain had acted unprofessionally in the crisis by not going through the military's chain of command. And even if Crozier hadn't leaked the letter, acting Navy Secretary Thomas Modley said it was Crozier's job to make sure the letter didn't get leaked. Modley said he had lost confidence in Crozier as a commander and relieved him of his post without the usual military investigation first. Modley says the president never told him to fire Crozier, but Modley did tell a friend the day before, breaking news, Trump wants him fired. The president, who had pardoned past and present military personnel accused of war crimes, wanted Crozier gone for writing a letter that exposed yet another failure by the Trump administration. At first, Trump cheered Modley for firing Crozier, but then turned on Modley for what happened next. Modley became acting Navy Secretary when Trump fired Navy Secretary Richard Spencer, who had disciplined rogue Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher. Of all the people who deserve to be fired because of their wrong-headed approaches to this crisis, the one to actually get fired was a captain who was trying to get help for his crew. Captain Crozier was cheered by his crew as he walked the gangplank to shore. The cheering also had a second purpose, telling the Pentagon it had made an unwise and unfair decision. One of the greatest captains you ever had, said one sailor. One retired four-star officer said he was disturbed by the message sent to other commanders by firing Crozier. We've been working for years to make our commanding officers feel free to speak out about problems. Those days might already be over. The man who was Navy Secretary for George H.W. Bush said, you have to support the action of a deployed commander. Those days might be over too. The days of watchdogs and whistleblowers and inspectors general may be over, at least for the seven remaining months in this presidential term. By Sunday of this week, Captain Crozier 
had also been struck by the coronavirus he'd tried to warn his superiors about. The U.S. Navy had left the appearance it doesn't care about its sailors. The Navy had left its sailors with that same impression. The crew of the Roosevelt, along with others in the Navy, were described as livid. They vented on social media, the unofficial sites where they chat. A leader they trusted and respected and even admired had been fired by Trump's civilian acting Navy secretary. The acting Navy secretary, Thomas Modley, landed on the aircraft carrier this week to yell profanities at the crew, telling them their former captain, the one they clearly admired, had been naive and stupid. Lawmakers from both parties in both houses of Congress were asking questions and talking about investigations and removal. On Monday afternoon, Modley said his remarks, which included bashing the news media, came from his heart. I stand by every word, he said. But later in the day, at the request of Defense Secretary Mark Esper, Modley issued a lame apology that included, I do not think Captain Brett Crozier is naive or stupid. He said he regretted swearing like sailors at sailors, but said anyone who knows the Navy would understand. Democrats and a few Republicans were calling for Modley's resignation on Tuesday. They got it after Modley met again with the defense secretary. Replacing Modley will be Army Undersecretary James McPherson, just confirmed a month ago as the Army's second highest ranking political appointee. Like Modley, McPherson will serve as the acting Navy secretary. And Captain Crozier's military career might not be over after all. Trump says... His career to that point was very good, so I'm going to get involved and see what's going on here because I don't want to destroy somebody for having a bad day. The Crozier incident had left Trump with enough bad mojo already. The perception that this wealthy nation has the best science has evaporated. The rest of the world became painfully aware that the U.S. is no longer the leader to follow, no longer the world standard, leaving a vacuum to happily be filled by China and Russia. They are offering aid to other countries, not the U.S., which instead went into isolation by downplaying the threat. Since World War II, offering aid has been our thing. Sharing the wealth is part of how the U.S. became the world leader that it was. In this crisis, China's been providing the medical supplies we lack here to Iran, Iraq, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and Ukraine. The richest man in China is sending supplies to all 54 of the countries on the continent of Africa. The $100 million the U.S. initially offered to Russia was sent instead to high-risk and developing countries. And the U.S. did send its troops to Italy to deliver hospital beds and other equipment at Italy's ground zero. But Europe will likely remember China's gesture when it's time to decide whether they should adopt China's 5G cell phone network, especially since the face masks they're getting bear the logo of the Chinese phone company Huawei. America led the fight against Ebola in Africa to keep it from coming here, so Africa, like the rest of the world, had high hopes for us this time. The deaths there will make them remember who helped them in this crisis, just as Europeans remember the kindness of American soldiers in World War II. But all the U.S. had to offer was its president calling this new disease the Chinese virus. It's true that China kept the U.S. in the dark for weeks, delaying even an opportunity for the U.S. to respond. Its first response was to deny seriousness of the disease, and by lying about it, China contributed to the spread. 
But Trump blaming China for spreading the virus falls on deaf ears in all those countries now getting aid from China, aid they once got from the U.S. China has accomplished more here than just turning the heads of the rest of the world. The U.S. failure to step up will be remembered because of the millions of lives lost due to a lack of U.S. leadership. The world had seen clues the U.S. was about to break up with it. Pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord was a red flag, to be sure. Threatening NATO didn't help. And, of course, the U.S. president's praise and defense of Russia's Vladimir Putin. Oh, and on the subject of blame, that China story marks the third time in this report you've heard Trump try to shift the blame for the failures in the U.S. coronavirus response onto something or someone else. For the lack of disease containment, he blamed China. For Illinois' shortage of ventilators, he blamed its governor. For the rotted and depleted stockpile, he blamed Obama, despite Trump's three and a half years in office. And for the pandemic itself, he blamed the World Health Organization for calling it wrong and for being China-centric. Back when he was saying he had it all under control, Trump was praising the WHO. Now he says he's considering holding up U.S. funding for the worldwide agency. The head of the WHO says the U.S. cutting off its funding would, quote, result in more body bags. That incident of blame shifting came on the same day we learned of Peter Navarro's memo to Trump, the one he says he didn't see or didn't look for at the end of January. Although no one's suspected of being responsible for the virus, there is blame to be had for the tens of thousands of American lives lost due to a lack of response and a lack of leadership. For that, Trump blames the World Health Organization, China, U.S. governors, and his perennial favorite, Obama. Trump says he and his team are doing a tremendous job. We learned this week that COVID-19 is hitting the African-American population here especially hard. Only about 3 in 10 citizens are black in places like Chicago, Milwaukee, and the state of Louisiana. But blacks have endured about 70% of the deaths in this pandemic. In Michigan, where the African-American population is only 14%, it accounts for 40% of all COVID-19 deaths. Blacks in the U.S. are more susceptible thanks to high blood pressure, heart disease, and diabetes. And all of that perhaps because of a lack of available health care. We don't know if these numbers speak for the rest of the country because the CDC doesn't even track, much less provide this data. Knowing which parts of our population need to get stronger safety warnings allows officials to target specific messages to those communities, and that would save lives. There will continue to be a disparity in health care between black and white if we don't even bother to count. Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris are pushing bills to start that tracking now. The Navajo Nation, meanwhile, is the hardest hit of our Native American tribes, with over 300 cases and 13 dead at last count. Quoting the president of the Navajo Nation, when we test patients, we have to send the test out to Phoenix and Albuquerque to be verified. We're probably three or four days behind. As of this week, Trump has used his emergency powers in this crisis to put into effect the kind of tight border controls he's wanted since before he was elected. He's suspending the laws that protect minors and asylum seekers, allowing U.S. officials to deport them inside of two hours or turn them away entirely. No medical tests, no annoying courtrooms. While Americans were concerned about their own spreading virus, Trump cited the, quote, mass uncontrolled movement across our southern border. In truth, 
Illegal crossings of our border with Mexico have dropped 40% in the last 10 days. But it's expected the Trump administration will keep these new rules in place even after the coronavirus crisis is over. In another agenda pursuit, in the shadows of this crisis, the Trump administration is moving to pull the U.S. out of a treaty that has stood for nearly 30 years for the purpose of reducing the risk of accidental war between Russia and the Western world. This agreement allowed the U.S. and Russia to fly reconnaissance planes over each other's territory. It's called the Open Skies Treaty, and it was supposed to have been discussed by the National Security Council. But that meeting's been put off because of the pandemic, so Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's decided on his own to proceed with ending that treaty. What could possibly go wrong? Well, that's what the treaty was all about. This week's other great outrage is about the Wisconsin primary. Americans have died for the right to vote. On Tuesday in Wisconsin, they risked death just to exercise that right. Because of the risk of contagion, Wisconsin governor ordered that this week's primary be delayed until June. Republicans did not like that plan. They felt certain that more Republicans than Democrats would brave the risk and that that would help them in the many state and local races on that primary ballot. Republicans challenged the governor's delay in court, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court, dominated by conservatives, voted 4-2 to two to throw out the governor's order, meaning, damn the confusion and the contagion, the primary was on again. Later that same day, Republicans also won around at the conservative-dominated U.S. Supreme Court, which overturned the governor's order to extend voting because of the crisis. The Supreme Court has put its hearings on pause and considers conducting its hearings by video chat, but ruled voters must pretend there is no pandemic and march on down to the polls. Republicans were determined to hold the vote because a pandemic is underway and because they believed fewer Democrats would go to the polls. The latest outrage over government failures in this pandemic had infringed on the rights of many Americans to vote, and Republicans and conservatives were more than fine with that. And that was with more than 1,000 confirmed cases in Milwaukee and 87 confirmed deaths there. In a stay-at-home order, conservative judges had ruled the people had to violate that order if they wanted to exercise their constitutional right to vote. So on Tuesday, partly due to a shortage of poll workers, thousands of Wisconsinites stood in a chilly rain for hours in lines that went around the block to vote, and many did not wear masks or keep their distance. We decided to risk our lives to come vote, said one woman, adding, I feel like I'm voting for all the people who don't have the luxury to wait this long in line. As one frustrated Milwaukee voter put it, it feels bad to have to choose between your personal safety and your right to vote, but, he said, you have to be heard. Except for those vitally important state and local races, the remaining primaries, many of them already delayed, may be moot in this year's presidential race thanks to this. Yesterday, with his campaign crippled by the pandemic, Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race, making Joe Biden the presumptive presidential nominee for the Democrats. Joe Biden is the Democrat who will challenge Donald Trump on November 3rd. At least that's when the Constitution says the election will be. In the $2 trillion stimulus negotiations, Trump insisted that Democrats cut the money they had requested for voting by mail. As Trump told Fox News, they had levels of voting that, if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. To which he added, I think a lot of people cheat with mail-in voting. There is no evidence of that. 
Now, Salon.com's Bob Seska doesn't have a crystal ball, and you should be glad of that because you might not like what he sees here. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. One of the ongoing issues with liberal activists, not to mention Democrats in general, is that we tend to be a little slow on the uptake when it comes to either Republican shenanigans or liberal causes that deserve more attention. Specifically, we too often jump on board with an event, court decision, or scandal after it's a little bit too late to reverse the course of whatever's happening. I'm not a futurist or anything like that, but this last-minute reaction time on the left is one of the reasons why I sometimes warn about possible catastrophes perhaps a year or more ahead of schedule. I'm not always right, but I figure if we have a roadmap, some sort of heads up for what's next, it's easier to be prepared when some of these eventualities hit the fan. Donald Trump, as we know, is a crook. And as we've seen with performance-enhancing drugs and sports, the crooks are always one step ahead of the regulators. We need to reverse that, especially given the political stakes of the November election. Specifically, one of the most terrifying things I'm seeing on the horizon is the possibility that Trump will somehow exploit either the courts or the coronavirus or both to disrupt the November 3 election. It's the nightmare scenario we've all been thinking about since November 9th, 2016, and now there are circumstances that might actually allow it to come true. It's important to note here that the president doesn't have the authority to simply postpone or cancel an election, but he can certainly disrupt an election. Hell, Trump disrupted the 2016 election and he wasn't even president at the time. Instead, it was his boss, Putin, who handled that as Trump's proxy. This year, however, he's got Putin, plus his disinformation Death Star accosting Facebook users with Agitprop, and now he's also got the coronavirus and our collective urge to protect ourselves from getting it. Trump also has the federal courts, which have been stacked with hundreds of Trump loyalists, thanks in part to Moscow Mitch. There's no way of knowing exactly how he'll do it, but it could involve all of those things, as well as a propaganda campaign that's already underway by the White House and the conservative entertainment complex to drive down voter turnout by demonizing mail-in balloting. For the past several episodes of The Trump Show, he's been falsely suggesting that mail-in ballots are corrupt, and the only method of voting he'll accept as valid is voter ID-supported in-person voting. Ironically, the most notorious example of absentee ballot corruption was by North Carolina Republicans, who criminally tampered with mail-in voting to elevate Mark Harris in the 9th Congressional District race back in 2018. It's also worth noting here that voter fraud is statistically non-existent, leaving voter ID as nothing more than another way for Republicans to suppress turnout and suppressed turnout tends to benefit the GOP. Nevertheless, Trump's talent for repeating the same bullshit on Endless Loop will help to inject his anti-mail-in nonsense into the softened skulls of at least 40% of the voting population, perhaps more. Meanwhile, knowing the coronavirus cases could surge again when the weather turns cold, say mid-October in many parts of the nation, Democrats and secretaries of state will be planning ahead with alternative methods of voting on and before November 3rd, including mail-in ballots. It's safe to assume that many of the states run by pro-Trump governors or states controlled by pro-Trump courts will repeat what happened with the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin, refusing to accommodate alternative balloting and forcing people to the polls, despite the harrowing circumstances. In other words, many of the traditionally blue states will roll out alternative voting systems, while Trump states will insist on in-person voting, even if the virus returns for another round. So how does Trump stop the election? 
He doesn't, actually. Trump will wait to see if he's doing poorly and if he has a bad night on November 3rd. It's possible that a team of Trump campaign lawyers will fan out to all the areas where the vote is close, probably blue or purple districts, to sue the boards of election to prevent or even toss out the certification of the vote totals. On what grounds, you might ask? Well, obviously, those allegedly corrupt mail-in ballots. And if Trump's lawyers land in courtrooms belonging to the red hat judges Trump's appointed, there could be successful rulings to perhaps stay the election results or, in the worst case scenario, toss out the results entirely. Depending on how the numbers stack up on election night, it's also possible the lawsuits could be restricted to key counties or even precincts rather than entire states. After lengthy court battles and if votes are tossed out, thousands of citizens could be disenfranchised by Trump's judges. In other cases, re-votes during special elections might be held in midwinter during a possible resurgence in the pandemic. Turnout would therefore be greatly reduced and a narrow advantage for Joe Biden could turn into a Trump victory. And yeah, four more years of destruction. This is the condensed version of such a scenario for sure. And it might not go down exactly like this, but it seems as though a convergence between this new blitz against mail-in ballots along with Trump's historic exploitation of the courts to disrupt everything from the impeachment to the release of his tax returns, could be the nuclear bombs Trump will need to win by cheating. The only question remains, what do we do about it? For now, it's all about approaching the 2020 election with our eyes wide open, knowing what Trump has done in the past and how he might act to preserve his presidency in the near future. He's working on his next moves already, Likewise, we have to do the same, whether that means warning our members of Congress or by simply overwhelming the vote so that if even the ballots are tossed out, there are still enough to win the Electoral College. It's also possible that everything will go smoothly. But seriously, do we really believe Trump will concede and go away if he loses? And if anyone believes that's the case, I have some magic beans to sell you. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Magic beans are the best kind. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Now, Florida officials are starting to worry. Election supervisors here warned Governor Ron DeSantis this week he needs to change the law to give them options to avoid another Florida Election Day meltdown. Florida's the biggest swing state in the nation, and what happened in Wisconsin sent chills through those county supervisors in Florida and visions of the debacle in 2000 when problems in Florida led the Supreme Court to decide the election, giving the win to George W. Bush instead of Al Gore, who had won the popular vote. In 2006, equipment malfunctions prompted the state to ditch its touchscreen voting machines. In 2018, three races had to be recounted. Florida elections are typically razor-close, About a third of its voters cast their votes by mail. But it isn't clear whether Governor DeSantis will call the legislature into special session to consider leaving the early voting sites open all the way through Election Day. But there will be voting on Election Day in Florida, says DeSantis, just as there was during the Civil War. Florida's Democratic Party has so far texted a million Floridians asking them to sign up for voting by mail. Can your kitty give you COVID, music news, and detentions, the mother of invention, in the final segment after this.
A massive technical failure delayed the release of today's program, and it will cost money to make it right. If you'd like to help in this independent journalism effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzzburbank News and Comment. Some kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. Now, you might need some things you can't go out for during the crisis. You may need to entertain yourself with books or music or movies. Well, there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, as always, thank you. When Monica Lewinsky finished her testimony in the impeachment of William Jefferson Clinton, she was asked if she had any final comments. She leaned into her microphone and said, I hate Linda Tripp. It was Linda Tripp who had befriended Lewinsky and then turned over to the independent counsel secretly recorded conversations in which Lewinsky spoke candidly of her drive-by relationship with Mr. Clinton. Tripp admitted she knew that was the end of that friendship when she turned over the tapes out of what she said was her patriotic duty. But Tripp was also pitching a book at the time with an anti-Clinton publisher, but she had broken Maryland's wiretapping laws in the process of making those recordings. The wiretapping charges were dropped in exchange for her testimony against Clinton because Linda Tripp's testimony was a turning point in an investigation that was stuck in neutral after four years and $30 million. Linda Tripp died this week at age 70 after a battle with pancreatic cancer. You cannot get COVID from a kitty. That's what the CDC says anyway. It wanted to reassure pet owners there's no evidence that cats, dogs, or other pets can give their owners the disease. And we now know that three tigers at the Bronx Zoo in New York got sick from the disease after contact with a human who had it. He was a 30-something black man in Chicago making three bucks an hour at a factory making toilets for 747s when his recording of Ain't No Sunshine made the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The factory job was his backup plan. That brick wall behind him on his first album cover was the wall of the factory, and the lunchbox in his hand was his. The photo was taken on his lunch break. He'd bought a second-hand guitar after seeing Lou Rawls perform in California. Bill Withers debuted on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in 1971. His hit song, Lean On Me, became an anthem this year to support medical workers in their coronavirus fight. Bill Withers died this week at age 81 from heart complications. 80s movie critic Roger Ebert had just walked out of a theater in mid-showing because the popcorn was way too salty. He went next door to quench his thirst to a bar for a beer, and it was there he heard a singer. So Ebert wrote his next review, instead of about a movie, about a musical performance by a local mailman. And it was that review in the Chicago Sun-Times that launched the career of singer-songwriter John Prine. The Grammy-winning Prine died this week from coronavirus disease at age 73. His raspy voice and sad songs made him beloved by fans, including Johnny Cash, Bob Dylan, Chris Christopherson, Joan Baez, Bonnie Raitt, Bette Midler, and Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys, who called his time with Prine the closest thing I could imagine to being around Mark Twain. Pink 
He's not yet in the pink, but the singer has recovered from her coronavirus infection and has donated $1 million to two groups helping those affected by the pandemic. Half will go to the Temple University Hospital Fund, the rest to the L.A. Mayor's Emergency COVID-19 Crisis Fund. Pink says the lack of widespread testing in the U.S. is, quote, an absolute travesty. Dolly Parton, meanwhile, is reading bedtime stories for children during the shutdown on YouTube, and she's donating a million dollars into research for a coronavirus vaccine. So what music are we listening to during the lockdown? The Weeknd has the number one album in the U.S. this week on the Billboard 200 chart. The Best of Kenny Rogers is in ninth place, followed by the soundtrack to Frozen 2. One notable passing in Hollywood this week. Actress Honor Blackman, who played Pussy Galore in the James Bond classic Goldfinger. Australians are being kept away from Easter services this Sunday due to its own stay-at-home order, but the Prime Minister of New Zealand is assuring the children there that although the Easter money might not be able to visit them all this year, he is considered an essential worker and thereby not subject to the lockdown. While she was at it, Madam Prime Minister also exempted the tooth fairy. A Canadian man is asking his government for permission to go fly a kite at 20,000 feet. The man's trying to break the world record for the highest kite flying, a record currently held by an Australian man who got his up to more than 16,000 feet six years ago. Home detention's been the mother of invention during this crisis. A father and son in New Orleans invented a social distancing circle, a 12-foot-wide hula hoop worn at the waist where it's suspended by fabric. The hoop keeps other people six feet away. In Youngstown, Ohio, Charlie Adams wanted to see his 80-year-old mom who cannot have visitors and cannot leave her room at the Windsor Estates Assisted Living Facility. And she was on the third floor, so Charlie couldn't just look at her through the window. Fortunately for them both, Charlie also owns a tree trimming company and got permission from the home to park his bucket truck outside and to use it to elevate him to her top floor window. There, he could chat with her by phone while making eye contact. And finally, a couple of roommates in Park Hills, Missouri really wanted pizza, but the pizza guy wasn't allowed to enter their building and they were under orders to stay home. And the apartment they share is on the second story of a building that also houses a pawn shop. So they found a pulley and some yarn and a box, which they lowered to ground level, complete with their payment and a tip. The delivery guy took the money, put the pizza in the box, and the roommate successfully brought the pizza up to their place. They may do it this way even after the lockdown ends. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.